Section 20 of the Complete Works of Tacitus, edited by Thomas Gordon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Claude Banta. The Complete Works of Tacitus, to which are prefixed political discourses upon that author. Edited and translated by Thomas Gordon, with introductory essays by Thomas Gordon. Volume 1. The Annals, Book 2. Part 2. Lebo's Rebellion. The summer now declining, some of the legions were sent back into winter quarters by land. More were embarked with Germanicus upon the river Amicia, to go from thence by the ocean. The sea at first was serene, no sound or agitation except from the oars or sails of a thousand ships. But suddenly a black host of clouds poured a storm of hail. Furious winds roared on every side, and the tempest darkened the deep, so that all prospect was lost, and it was impossible to steer. The soldiers, too, unaccustomed to the terrors of the sea, in the hurry of fear disordered the mariners, or interrupted the skillful by unskillful help. At last, the south wind, mastering all the rest, drove the ocean and the sky. The tempest derived new force from the windy mountains and swelling rivers of Germany, as well as from an immense train of clouds, and contracting with all fresh vigor from the boisterous neighborhood of the north, it hurled the ships and tossed them into the open ocean, or against islands shored with deep rocks, or dangerously beset with covered shoals. The ships, by degrees, with great labor, and the change of the tide, were relieved from the rocks and sands, but remained at the mercy of the winds. Their anchors could not hold them. They were full of water, nor could all the pumps discharge it. Hence, to lighten and raise the vessels swallowing at their decks, the invading waves, the horses, beasts, baggage, and even the arms were cast into the deep. By how much the German ocean is more outrageous than the rest of the sea, and the German climate excels in vigor, by so much this ruin was reckoned to exceed in greatness and novelty. They were engaged in a tempestuous sea, believed deep without bottom, vast without bounds, no shores near but hostile shores. Part of the fleet were swallowed up, many were driven upon remote islands void of human culture, where the men perished through famine, or were kept alive by the carcasses of horses cast in by the flood. Only the galley of Germanicus landed upon the coast of the Chaucians, where, wandering sadly day and night upon the rocks and prominent shore, and incessantly accusing himself as the author of such mighty destruction, he was hardly restrained by his friends from casting himself desperately into the same hostile floods. At last, with the returning tide and an assisting gale, the ships began to return, all maimed, almost destitute of oars, or with coats spread for sails, and some, utterly disabled, were dragged by those that were less. He repaired them hastily, and dispatched them to search the islands, and by this care many men were gleamed up, many were, by the Angrivarians, our new subjects, redeemed from their maritime neighbors, and restored, and some driven into Great Britain, where sent back by the little British kings.
those who had come from afar recounted wonders at their return. The impetuosity of whirlwinds, wonderful birds, sea monsters of ambiguous forms between man and beast, strange flights, or the effects of imagination and fear. The noise of this wreck, as it animated the Germans with hopes of renewing the war, awakened Germanicus also to restrain. He commanded Caius Silius with thirty thousand foot and three thousand horse to march against the Catians. He himself, with a greater force, invaded the Marcians, where he learnt from Malovenus, their general, lately taken into our subjection, that the eagle of one of Varus's legions was hid underground in a neighboring grove and kept by a slender guard. Instantly two parties were dispatched, one to face the enemy and provoke them from their post, the other to beset their rear and dig up the eagle, and success attended both. Hence Germanicus advanced with greater alacrity, laid waste the country, and smote the foe, either not daring to engage, or, wherever they engaged, suddenly defeated. Nor, as we learnt from the prisoners, were they ever seized with greater dismay. The Romans, they cried, are invincible. No calamities can subdue them. They have wrecked their fleet, their arms are lost, our shores are covered with the bodies of their horses and men, yet they attack us with their usual ferocity, with the same firmness and with numbers as it were increased. The army was from thence led back into winter quarters, full of joy to have balanced, by this prosperous expedition, their late misfortune at sea, and, by the bounty of Germanicus, their joy was heightened, since to each sufferer he caused to be paid as much as he declared he had lost. Neither was it doubted, but the enemy were humbled, and concerting measures for obtaining peace, and that the next summer would terminate the war. But Tiberius, by frequent letters, urged him to come home there to celebrate the triumph already decreed him. He had already tried enough of events, and tempted abundant hazards. He had indeed fought great and successful battles, but he must likewise remember his losses and calamities, which, however, owing to wind and waves, and no fault of the general, were yet great and grievous. He himself had been sent nine times into Germany by Augustus, and affected much more by policy than arms. It was thus he had brought the Segumbrians into subjection, thus drawn the Suavians and King Marabudus under the bonds of peace, the Cheruscans too, and the other hostile nations, now the Roman vengeance was satiated, might be left to pursue their own national feuds. Germanicus besought one year to accomplish his conquest, but Tiberius assailed his modesty with a new bait and fresh importunity by offering him another consulship, for the administration of which he was to attend in person at Rome. He added that if the war was still to be prosecuted, Germanicus should leave the field of glory to his brother Drusus, to whom there now remained no other, since the empire had nowhere a war to maintain but in Germany, and thence only Drusus could acquire the title of imperator and merit the triumphal laurel. Germanicus persisted no longer, though he knew that this was all feigned and hollow, and saw himself invidiously torn away from a harvest of ripe glory. About this time, Lebodrusus, of the Scribonian family, was arraigned for meditating attempts against the state, and, because then first were devised those pestilent arts and impeachments, 
which for so many years devoured the commonwealth, I will lay open with more exactness the beginning, progress, and issue of this affair. Fermius Catus, the senator, a close confidant of Libo, traitorously misled that youth, unwary as he was, and easy to be ensnared, with specious delusions, engaged him to try the predictions of the Chaldeans, the superstitious rites of the magicians, and the interpreters of dreams, and to flatter his hopes and ambition, was incessantly magnifying the nobility of his race, for that Pompey was his great-grandfather, Scribonia, once the wife of Augustus, his aunt, the Caesars, his kinsman, and his house full of images, tempted him to luxury and borrowing, was associated with him in his debauches, surety for his debts, and all to accumulate more matter for crimes and evidence. When he found himself furnished with store of witnesses, and amongst them some of Libo's slaves, who were also privy to the obnoxious conduct of their master, he sought admittance to the emperor, having first by Flaccus Vescalarius, a Roman knight, intimate with Tiberius, represented to him Libo as a criminal, as also a detail of his crimes. Tiberius slighted not his information, but denied him access, for that the communication, he said, might still be managed by the same Flaccus. In the meantime, he preferred Libo to the praetorship, entertained him at his table, shewed no strangeness in his countenance, no resentment in his words, so deeply had he smothered his vengeance, and when he might have restrained all the dangerous speeches and practices of Libo, he chose rather to permit them in order to know and punish them. Nor were they checked or made public, till one Junius, who was dealt with to call up by charms the infernal shades, discovered this to Falcinius Trio, a distinguished accuser, one greedy of renown in wickedness. Instantly Trio marked out the doom of the accused, hastened to the consuls, and one of them demanded that the senate might meet and adjudge him. This the fathers were forthwith summoned, and even prized, that upon an affair of mighty moment and horrible tendency to the state, they were to deliberate. Libo, the while, having changed his dress, went covered with mourning from house to house, accompanied by ladies of the noblest rank, and implored the mediation of his kindred, that they would protect him against impending ruin, and speak in his behalf. But every one of them declined his suit, each upon a different pretense, yet in reality all from the same fear. The day the Senate sat for his trial, vanquished with dread and sinking under sickness, or as some relate feigning it, he was borne in a litter to the court, and, leaning upon his brother, with supplicant hands and words, he accosted and strove to soften Tiberius, who received him with a countenance perfectly unmoved. It was the emperor who next recited the charge against him, and the authors of the charge, but with such wary moderation, that he might seem neither to soften nor sharpen his crimes. To Trio and Catas, two other accusers, Fonteus Agrippa and Caius Vibius, joined themselves, and strove who should have the right to implead the accused. At last, when neither would yield, and Libo was come unprovided with a pleader, Vibius undertook to maintain distinctly the several heads of the charge, and produced articles so extravagant that amongst the rest it was one, 
how Lebo had consulted the fortune-tellers, whether he should ever be master of opulence sufficient to cover the great Appian road with money as far as Brundusium. There were other accusers of the same kind, foolish, chimerical, or, taken in tenderer sense, deserving pity. But there was one article formed upon a paper, containing the names of the Caesars, as well as those of some senators, with mysterious characters and malignant notes joined to them. This the accused urged against Lebo, as written in his own hand. Lebo denied it, and hence it was proposed to examine by torture his conscious slaves. But, seeing it was forbid by an ancient law of the Senate to put the servants to the question in a trial touching the life of their master, the crafty Tiberius invented a new law to elude the old, and ordered these slaves to be sold to the public steward, that, by this expedient, evidence against Libo might be racked from his servants without violating the law. In this state of despondency, Libo requested respite till the next day, and then returning to his own house, transmitted by his kinsman Publius Carinus his last prayers to the emperor, who replied that he must make his request to the senate. His house was in the meantime encompassed with a band of soldiers, who, with studied noise and terror, were filling all the court on purpose, to create certain attention and alarm, just when Libo sat down to the banquet, which, as the ultimate pleasure of his life, he had prepared. But then, feeling agonies instead of pleasure, he called for a minister of death, successively grasped the hands of his slaves, and into them, by turns, strove to squeeze a sword. But they, as they trembled and shunned the sad task, through the hurry of fear and flight, overturning the lamp that illuminated the table, in this ominous and tragical darkness, he gave himself two deadly stabs in the bowels. As he groaned and fell, his freedmen sprang in, and the soldiers, seeing the slaughter perpetrated, retired. The charge against him, however, was pushed in the Senate, with the same unrelenting eagerness. Yet Tiberius vowed that he would have interceded for his life, notwithstanding his treason, if he had not thus hastily died by his own hands. His estate was divided amongst his accusers, and those of them who bore the rank of senators were, without the regular way of election, preferred to praetorships. Then Cota Messalinus proposed that the image of Libo might not accompany the funerals of his posterity. Gnaeus Lentulus, that none of the Scriboni should henceforth assume the surname of Drusus, and, at the motion of Pompeius Flaccus, days of thanksgiving were appointed, that gifts should be prepared to Jupiter, to Mars, and to the godness Concord, and that the thirteenth of September, the day on which Libo slew himself, should be an established festival, were the votes of Lucius Publius, of Asinius Gallus, of Papius Motilius, and of Lucius Apronius. I have related the votes and psychophysy of these men, to shew that adulation is an inveterate evil in the state. Decrees of the Senate were likewise made for driving astrologers and magicians out of Italy, and one of the herd, Lucius Pituanius, was precipitated from the Tarpetian rock. Publius Marcius, another, was by judgment of the consuls, at the sound of trumpet, executed without the Escaline gate, according to the ancient form. End of section 20